There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, welcome back. Nice to be back. Yes, you took a week off. I did. Yeah, good did. for you. Did you do anything fun on that week? Not a thing, no. No? No. <laughs> Just didn't feel like being here. Well, last week, Greg, in your absence, we discussed Future Proof, I guess the wealth festival that Blair and I had attended in Huntington Beach, and I had Blair and Paige join me in your absence. It took two of them to fill the seat of you, Greg. I've heard the podcast. No, they're just more slender. (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. But no, good to have you back. I know today we're going to get into something about opinions, predictions, and forecasts. Is that right? right? Yeah, you bet. You're going to take us away? I am. Although I did want to revisit one thing because I missed being here for last week's podcast. And you guys attended this Future Proof Conference. And I wanted to just touch on like why... Why would you and Blair go to this conference? Why would we pay thousands of dollars to go to a conference? Exactly. It's a good question. Well, you know the answer to this is that we do attend a lot of these conferences all across Canada and the US. Never been to Europe for a conference. No, me neither. Been to Europe, but not for a conference. But yeah, we attend these conferences and we meet with management of different companies, be it product providers or management of certain companies that trade on stock exchanges. And it's all in an effort to improve what we're doing. So it's all due diligence. It's all meant to make sure that we're giving our end user, our clients, the best service and products that we can find. Exactly. And that was obviously what I was getting to by asking that question. Over the years, we've been to countless, and I mean countless because I can't count them all, conferences. And it's really to benefit us, but ultimately to benefit our clients because we're exposed to changing trends in this industry. We're exposed to better ways to communicate with clients, better ways to communicate issues on how investing works. And just, it's all a benefit. It's a learning experience. And I think continuing education is critical, probably in most or all advice businesses like ours. Because you can't stand still. If you're an accountant, you have to be constantly aware of changes to the tax code and things like that. And I think it's just important that people understand that their advisors, they need to move forward as well. As long as they're providing advice, they need to keep growing and finding new and better ways of doing things. And we've certainly done that over the years. Our investment strategies and our approach to our clients has changed very significantly over the last 26 years that I've been in the business. Even just from 2000 and I would say the pivotal moment for us was 2009, the global financial crisis where you got a chance to really revisit and rethink exactly what you were doing, what products you were using, what services you were rendering. And we realized at the time, like we could do it a lot better. Exactly. And so the experience since 2009 has been way different than the experience pre-2009. That's right. And that's evolution. Exactly. So you know what else I've learned after being in the business for the last 26 years? You always say that. 
exactly how many years you've been in the business. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. What have you learned in the last 26 years, Greg? It's very difficult to predict the future. Yeah. I've learned a few other things as well, which are typically could be subjects of other podcasts, but I wanted to spend some time on this subject of predicting the future, given the really interesting times we're living in. So what I wanted to talk about today is opinions, predictions, and forecasts, because all of these could play a role in investing, but we want to know how to use them or not use them in planning for a successful investing experience. So let's start by looking at opinions. An opinion is a subjective belief and is the result of emotion or interpretation of facts. And according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, an opinion is a view, judgment, or appraisal formed in the mind about a particular matter. And typically, opinions can't be tested and are not always supported by evidence. So we all have opinions. You have opinions. All the time. I have opinions. Some are formed based on some particular knowledge or experience we've had, and others formed based on subjective and personal beliefs without actually the benefit of facts to back them up. But there's a difference between having an opinion and making decisions based on that opinion. In conversations with clients, they might say, well, what do you think is going to happen with inflation or something like that? I might have an opinion on it, but I absolutely would not want anyone to make an investment decision based on my opinion, because again, it's just something I believe. Well, actually, but it's something you learned over years that everything that looks obvious right now isn't obvious. Actually, before you get into it, you got me thinking. I just came across a quote last night. I was looking at simulation theory, Greg. Simulation theory. Yeah. Okay. This idea that we're all living in a simulation. It's not my idea. It just, okay. I came across it in a podcast and I thought, oh, what is that? Anyways, I went and looked it up and there was this quote that I found. This is a little long, but it goes exactly to what you're talking about. Reality is what we take to be true. What we take to be true is what we believe. What we believe is based upon our perceptions. What we perceive depends on what we look for. What we look for depends on what we think. What we think depends on what we perceive. What we perceive determines what we believe. What we believe determines what we take to be true. What we take to be true is our reality. Wow. So you're talking about opinions. Exactly. Beliefs. Yeah. Anyways, I know it was a little long, but I thought it was fitting. Interesting. Well, listen, what kind of examples of opinions would our clients hear from us? It could be something like, well, I think the market could keep going down since interest rates are going up, or I think inflation will come down. I think inflation is moderating and we will avoid a recession. I think electric vehicles will replace gas vehicles in the next 10 years. I think it's better to be bald because you save so much money on shampoo. (laughs) Things like that. (laughs) Okay, personal belief. And haircuts. (laughs) And haircuts. These are opinions, and it's not that there isn't some basis in fact from the standpoint of what might be happening right now, but obviously the opinion as to what happens going forward may not actually be right. And so it would be foolish to build an investment portfolio or make shampoo purchase decisions around any of those kinds of opinions. But they're particularly prevalent in the investment business and in politics. So you see it all the time on cable news or business news. In politics, examples might be answering questions such as, what do you think will happen in the midterm elections? And will Republicans take back the Senate? Interesting, there was a, I remember a particular investment presentation by someone who, without naming names, I'll just say he's known in the industry as the Bond King. Wait, currently? Yes, but I won't say names. Yeah, his first name is Jeff. Okay. 
but I won't say any other names. <laughs> Last name starts with a G. Uh, right. Okay. Anyway, this was back in 2018 or 19. I can't remember exactly when, but there was a presentation sponsored by our firm and he was talking about outlook for the fixed income markets and that kind of thing. But over the course of the interview or the discussion, he was asked who would be the Democratic presidential nominee for the 2020 election. He said unequivocally that it will absolutely, definitely not be Joe Biden. Okay, he was 100% sure of that. And obviously, since we know what actually happened after that, he may be the most highly regarded bond manager and might know everything there is to know about fixed income markets, but I actually wouldn't want to follow his advice on politics. That was his opinion. He may have had some justification for making it, but clearly, clearly wrong. You know what? He spoke at Future Proof. Did you know that? I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. Very controversial presentation. Really? By the way, I won't get into it on this podcast. It it, it seems though that based on what I saw, he does like to dabble in politics and bring politics into discussions of markets and things. So interesting. In this particular case, how could he have known in advance to give himself that kind of certainty that Joe Biden would not be the nominee? How could he know how thousands and thousands of individuals voting in those primaries would vote months or a year in advance? It's just an opinion. That's it. Let's leave opinions behind and agree that we shouldn't be making investment decisions based on opinions. And it's okay to have an opinion. Absolutely. Everybody has opinions. Like oftentimes investors are looking to us for our opinions. And as you say, we say, well, I think it's, this is going to happen, but I also think you should probably just keep your money invested in your model portfolio and rebalance as necessary. Exactly. So let's move on to predictions. Predictions are estimates of future events made by subjective considerations. So they may actually be based on the basis of previous knowledge and experience and tend to be kind of general statements about the future as opposed to a specific numerical or quantitative number or statement, let's say. So while prediction may take facts and evidence as a base, it's also got some amount of instinct or gut feeling included in those predictions. So when you look at predictive statements, they're typically more what I'll call probabilistic rather than specific. So they might be things like, we expect the market to be higher at the end of the year. Inflation will be lower next year as the supply chain bottlenecks are cleared. Federal Reserve will begin lowering interest rates next year as the economy slips into a recession. This winter could be colder than usual. Those kinds of things. And so again, they're a little bit more slightly meant to be more definitive than opinions. There is often a lot of analysis that goes into it, into those predictions. But again, saying, well, the markets could be higher next year is not particularly specific. Well, actually, the capital asset pricing model is basically a predictive statement. It's saying the expected return of your portfolio is equal to the risk-free rate plus the beta times the market risk premium. That's right. Well, the risk-free rate right now is like point. I don't know, 7% or something, right? Exactly. So if you plug in the numbers, the CAPM formula says the expected return of a portfolio over the next 12 months should be 10%. Now, as you say, is it going to be 10%? That's right. Exactly. Who Maybe. knows? You know, it might <laughs> be, and, and it might not be. It, it very often is and very often isn't. There's more of a temptation to make decisions based on those kinds of predictions. But again, in investing terms, they're not particularly useful because if you look at it from a probabilistic standpoint, we almost always expect the markets to go up over time because historically they have. And because of that vague nature of prediction that often lacks the specific science or evidence, they might not be of a whole lot of use making 
long-term strategic or even short-term tactical decisions. They're interesting, and again, they can be based on analysis and some evidence, but there also could well be some personal biases that find their way through to those predictions. Well, we actually talked about this last week when I had Blair and Page on the show. We talked about how the stock market, I guarantee, is going to go up in the future at some point. That's a predictive statement because the probability is that it'll go back to where it was and beyond at some point. It doesn't tell you how far, it doesn't tell you when, it just says, generally speaking, in the future. Okay, so that's predictions. We've covered opinions and predictions. Now, what about forecasting? Forecasting and predictions are kind of sometimes over, they kind of merge into one, but I look at forecasting a little bit differently because forecasting is an estimation of future events, which people try to make by incorporating and casting forward data related to the past in some sort of systematic manner. So it attempts to make a definitive and specific statement about the future based on statistic modeling and, again, attempts to be objective. And so the process of forecasting involves collecting past data, analyzing the collected data, observing recent trends, and ultimately predicting a future outcome. This sounds a lot like technical analysis. Well, it can be, but it could also be fundamental analysis. And what we're going to talk to for the purposes of this is what I'm going to call macro forecasting. Macro forecasting focuses on the economy as a whole, the macroeconomics, and would include things like economic growth or GDP, inflation, interest rates, employment, retail sales, etc. So some of the major macroeconomic factors, that's what macro forecasting is all about. And that's what I'd like to sort of focus the rest of this discussion on today. Because macro forecasts lead to implications for stock and bond market returns. Clearly, positive economic growth is good for stock market returns. High inflation and rising interest rates would be bad for bond market returns and ultimately stock returns and so on. And so macro forecasting is a very significant part of our investment landscape. And we want to touch on how reliable is that forecasting. And for this part of the discussion, I really want to lean heavily on a recent memo by Howard Marks. Who's Howard Marks? Howard Marks is a renowned investment manager. He's been in the investment industry for 40 or more years. He's co-founder of a company called Oak Tree Capital, which is about a $160 billion company in terms of assets under management. They actually happen to focus mainly in alternative investments, which would be things like private equity, private debt. Liquid alts? <laughs> Maybe not liquid alts, actually. No. But anyway, he writes a lot of investment memos. Greg, I got a question for you. How come you're okay saying Howard's name out loud, but not the Bond King's name out loud? Well, because I'm speaking very positively about Howard Marks and the Bond King, I was maybe speaking a little bit less positively. Got it. At least around his political predictions. Anyway, (laughs) Howard Marks recently wrote a memo that was called The Illusion of Knowledge, and it addresses a lot of the issues around macro forecasting. And so I'm going to pull snippets from this memo, but anybody that wants to actually read the whole thing, Google Howard Marks, The Illusion of Knowledge, and you'll be able to read the whole thing. In the memo, he actually references another noted historian, Niall Ferguson, who writes on international and economic history. But here's what Niall Ferguson wrote in Bloomberg Opinion on July 17th. I quote, consider for a moment what we are implicitly asking when we pose the question, has inflation peaked? We're not only asking about the supply of and demand for 94,000 different commodities, manufacturers, and services. 
We're also asking about the future path of interest rates set by the Fed, which, despite the much-vaunted policy of forward guidance, is far from certain. We're asking about how long the strength of the dollar will be sustained, and as it is currently holding down the price of U.S. imports. But there's more. We're at the same time implicitly asking how long the war in Ukraine will last, as the disruption caused since February by the Russian invasion has significantly exacerbated energy and food price inflation. We're asking whether oil-producing countries such as Saudi Arabia will respond to pleas from Western governments to pump more crude. We should probably also ask ourselves what the impact on Western labor markets will be of the latest COVID Omicron subvariant BA5. UK data indicates that BA5 is 35% more transmissible than its predecessor BA2, which in turn was over 20% more transmissible than the original Omicron. Good luck adding all those variables to your model. It is in fact just as impossible to be sure about the future path of inflation as it is to be sure about the future path of the war in Ukraine and the future path of the COVID pandemic. I think accurately predicting inflation is more impossible, if there is such a thing, than predicting the outcomes of the other two, since doing so requires being right about both of those outcomes and a thousand other things. How can anyone possibly get all these things right? So, you know, it's when, it's you, when, you, when you think about it, that's right, because a lot of people are into what I would, I guess, is, are single variable assumptions. So they'll say, okay, well, if inflation comes down next year, and I think it will, then that should be positive for the stock market, and I think stocks will be up. Or I think inflation is going to stay high, and therefore it'll be a poor year for the stock market. But how can you make a judgment like that based on a single variable when you've got literally thousands of other variables? I like it when he says he points out the 94,000 different commodities, manufacturers, and services. Exactly. So you've got 94,000 inputs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so Howard Mark says, consider the following aspects of macro forecasting, the number of assumptions that are required, the number of processes and relationships that have to be incorporated, the inherently undependability and instability of those processes, and the role of randomness and the likelihood of surprises. So the bottom line is that forecasts can't be right often enough to be worthwhile. And Howard Marks has described this many times, but he's going to talk a little bit about macro forecasts. So he says, most forecasts consist of extrapolation of past performance, which I guess makes sense to us. Because macro developments usually don't diverge much from prior trends, extrapolation is usually successful. So therefore, most forecasts are correct. But since extrapolation is usually anticipated by security prices, those who follow expectations based on extrapolation don't actually enjoy unusual profit when it holds. If everybody expects it to be true, then it's already baked into the prices and you won't get an unusually large return for that. But once in a while, the behavior of the economy does deviate materially from past patterns. And because this comes as a surprise to most investors, its occurrence moves markets meaning that an accurate prediction of the deviation would be highly profitable. However, since the economy doesn't diverge from past performance very often, correct forecasts of deviation are rarely made and most forecasts of deviation turn out to be wrong. So, you have extrapolation forecasts, most of which are correct but unprofitable, and potentially profitable forecasts of deviation, which are rarely correct and thus are generally unprofitable. And therefore, most forecasts don't add to returns. And I guess that's really what we're looking for is like, why would anybody want to know a forecast other than to make a decision or a bet on it and try to get unusually high returns or profits in excess of what the markets typically deliver? Well, isn't it kind of like when you look at your weather app on your phone or 
I don't know, you watch the news and the weather reporter says, oh, we're going to have a beautiful week all week and next Thursday it's going to be 21 degrees. Like next Thursday, and it could be a week later. The probability of that coming true is very low compared to tomorrow morning, it will be zero degrees when you get up. Exactly. The probability is probably much higher. Yep, exactly. So, (coughs) pardon me. What's going on over there? I just choked on my delicious, can I say Starbucks coffee? Only if you're recommending it to the listeners. I think it's a darn fine cup of joe and I'd recommend it to anyone. (laughs) Anyway, let's look at some actual examples because this can be informative. So last August, and I'm just going to use an unnamed investment firm, they reported U.S. GDP, gross domestic product, the economy trending at 6.6% for 2021. It was a good year in 2021, and they forecast 4.4% for 2022. So the actual GDP for 2021 came in at 5.7%, lower than the 6.6, but not bad. But the outlook for 2022 now is 1.8%, a far cry from the 4.4% that they forecasted last year. Just explain that to people, what you mean by that. So last year, at the end of August... They were forecasting GDP or gross domestic product in the U.S. The economy would grow by 4.4% in 2022. And instead, it, instead, it's tracking to grow at 1.8%. So those are different numbers. And that's a big difference in economic terms. So 1.8%. And we're still not finished the year, so we may not even come in that well. For Canada last year, the forecast was for 4.3%. And we're currently trending at 3.4%. It's not bad, but it's still lower in economic terms, significantly lower. Before you go on, economic terms, I want to get through this real quick because recently I've had people say, is there going to be a recession next year? Is there a recession coming up? Well, we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth. In the US. In the US, which by definition is a recession. That's right. So therefore you say that number might come down from 1.8 to somewhere closer to maybe zero. It could. I mean- In order to come out at 1.8%, we need to have positive GDP growth for the last two quarters of the year. So we'll see. Now, a lot of the GDP forecast is based on inflation because obviously inflation is a significant factor in GDP growth. So let's look at inflation. Inflation in Canada last year, last August 31st, was trending at 2.1% for the year. And the forecast for 2022 was 1.9%. So a year ago, Inflation was forecast at 1.9%. This year, it looks like inflation will come in at 6.9% for the year, 5% higher than forecast. Only 5% higher. Only 5% higher. That's massive (laughs) because of the impact of inflation, which has really been almost non-existent for a decade. This is, of course, the highest inflation in 40 years. In the US, the forecast for inflation last year, the forecast for this year, 2022, was 2.7%. Well, now it's been revised up to 8.1% for the year. It's pretty high. Which is, again, the highest inflation level in 40 years. And nobody was predicting it last year, partly because of what Howard Marks talked about, just the extrapolation effect of forecasts where inflation had been relatively low and it was extrapolated to be low this year. And there are some global macro events that occurred this year that there's no way they were accounted for in inflation predictions last year. Exactly. So if anybody had made a forecast that inflation would deviate dramatically and would be massive this year, they could have profited greatly from that forecast because you can make investment decisions. You know what inflation will do to stock and bond markets. But again, because those deviations are quite rare, there probably weren't a whole lot of people 
a year ago that were predicting this massive inflation. And even people that were predicting inflation, again, thought it would be transitory. So very difficult. So our point here is not to beat up on macro forecasters because that's their job. And that's what they're paid to do. The point is that the massive number of inputs that would affect the direction of the economy and the underlying factors make it highly unlikely that those forecasts could translate themselves into unusual returns or profits in the stock and bond markets. And when we say unusual, of course, we're hoping for unusually high returns, not unusually low. But I will say it is important to know where you stand. So we do talk about the economy a lot with our clients because people want to know what is going on and everybody should know. You should know where you stand. You should know that inflation is high and at 40-year highs, possibly. We should know that interest rates are rising and that's going to have effect on, as I say, on stock and bond returns. It had an effect on stock and bond returns to this point, and it will have different effects on stock and bond returns going forward. So we definitely want to understand those, but we don't necessarily want to make investment decisions based on those forecasts. So what do we do? I guess the answer is we go back to our models. The models being that there are factors of returns in stocks and bonds, and by trying to capture those factors, we should expect a satisfactory investment experience, meaning getting returns in line with or ideally slightly better than the markets without having to make market timing calls. And that's what a lot of these macro forecasts will have people doing is the whole idea of publishing a forecast is for people to make essentially market timing calls with their investments. And I will tell you that a majority of the speakers last week would dispute the idea that forecasting adds any value at all. That's just their opinions, possibly mine too. And Morgan Housel said it best last week, Greg, is that if you just dollar cost average through the whole cycle of your life, you will end up in the top 5% of investors out there. That's it. Why don't you tell us who Morgan Housel is? Because it turns out in the Howard Marks memo that I've been referring to, Morgan Housel is quoted prominently. Morgan Housel is quoted prominently everywhere these days. I mean, he wrote a book called The Psychology of Money that has sold more than 2 million copies. Right on. He worked in investment banking for a while, but was an author by trade. I think he started writing for The Motley Fool. Okay. And then started continued on his writing with The Wall Street Journal and ultimately led him to write these books. Excellent writer and well quoted. Listen, in the end, May sound like a broken record here. Asset allocation, diversification, managing costs, rebalancing. All of those eliminate the need for tactical short-term actions based on essentially unpredictable macroeconomic forecasts. So let's leave it at there. Well, and I think you just got to move your signposts. Stop focusing on what's happening right now or the next six months from now and start focusing on what's happening over the years from now. Because the other acronym that I heard last week was TINA. Are you familiar with TINA? Not Tina Turner or anything like that, but... There is no alternative. What's the alternative? You need to be invested, as you say. You need to rebalance. You need to know how much risk is appropriate for your portfolio. Once you got that figured out, just go with it. Right on. Well, I think Blair had mentioned, he said one of the comments that he heard that he liked best was that you need to know what game you're playing. You don't want to compare yourself to what other people are doing because they may not be playing the same game as you. And they might be lying to themselves or others. That's right. Right. (laughs) That's a whole other topic, though. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe I guess that's it for today. That's it for today. That's opinions, predictions, and forecasts. And we'll look forward to next time. And these are just your opinions. That's my my opinion. Yes. That's right. And yours. All right. (laughs) Okay. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. 
To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.